Hey there, everybody. Tom Salami here. Welcome back. This is the MedTech Talk podcast. We're going to talk about peripheral artery disease today with Bruce Shook. He's the president and CEO of Intact Vascular. Intact recently closed on a $20 million Series C round. It's going to uh, be putting its tech in the vascular system through clinical testing, hopes to get a uh, PMA with the capital it's raised. We talked with Bruce about his uh, career in MedTech, uh, about his focus early on in neuro, uh, what his thoughts are on the uh, so-called decade of the brain, and how he found his way to intact vascular. We'll talk a bit about fundraising, about building out the company, and about a unique arrangement uh, that intact has with, uh, with a spin-out, a spin-out called Vesper. So we'll let Bruce get into the details of that. Before I let you go, though, I did want to remind you that the MedTech Conference is happening on May 31st. Make sure you join us in Minneapolis. Go to medtechconference.com. We are releasing the roster of speakers this week. Uh, You can find them on the website at medtechconference.com, but we'll be sending them directly to your inboxes as well. They include include many greats, including uh, Fred Mall from Morris. We're very happy to have him on the program, but I don't want to take away from uh, the entire program, so... Make sure you uh, check out medtechconference.com, and if you're not signed up for updates, please do sign up so you'll know uh, more changes that are coming. But uh, the agenda is actually pretty much intact, so please do uh, take a look, and please join us on May 31st in Minneapolis. Now let's get into this conversation with Bruce Shook. Bruce Shook, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. Great to have you. Congratulations on uh, raising the round for Intact. That's uh, that's great news. Thank you. Yeah, we're uh, very pleased to have it done. Well, we'll get into uh, the secret of your success a little bit later in the podcast uh, to find out your your fundraising secrets. But first, I'd like to open up with a little bit of, uh, of a personal question, just in terms of uh, how you found your way into MedTech. I think it's always an interesting story as to how people uh, were first drawn to this uh, to this sector of ours. Sure, sure. Uh, I actually um, went into the chemical industry uh, right out of college. I worked for a large uh, Fortune 500 chemical company. I was an engineer there. And, um, you know, the work was technically interesting. I did a lot of work on cryogenics, but it was really not very fulfilling. Uh, And after a couple of years of that, um, I really decided to pursue something that had always fascinated me, which was medicine. And, um, you know, just decided to combined my engineering training uh, with uh, with medicine and went off to graduate school, got a degree in biomedical engineering. Um, and from there, you know, I, I went into med tech. This is going back quite a ways now. It's uh, We're talking about the early 1980s. But uh, I, I landed at Cordis uh, right out of grad school uh, when Cordis was uh, the number two pacemaker company in, in the nation. Uh, so it was really um, a pacemaker business at the time, long before J&J entered. And, uh, you know, off I went from there. Um, never looked back. And I see for after Cordis, uh, you were there for three years. You moved over to, to Abiumed to be president. Is that right? Well, I, I didn't uh, move over there as president. I joined Abiumed uh, when it was really a little tiny startup. Um, I may, maybe we had 15 employees, something like that. I don't remember exactly now. But uh, the company uh, had not... Um, not yet run uh, its first clinical trial, and uh, I spent 10 years there, ultimately did end up as president. I, I ran the business unit, um, but uh, most notably, I think uh, we brought the very first ventricular assist device to the U.S. market, a product we called the BBS 5000. Um, so it was a very, very uh, kind of 
path blazing type of a thing uh, and uh, an original PMA. Great experience, and uh, I like to think I contributed at least a little bit to creating the uh, the bad business as it is today. Sure. So I want to get into the, 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 the jump from Cordis. I mean, you, you found yourself in a good company, uh, good career track. What uh, caused you to or convinced you to, to join a, a smaller company, a startup, uh, after only three years? What was the uh, What were you looking for? Well, kind of the uh, the catalyst was that the um, the implantable products division, the division I work for, Cordis, uh, ran into some serious FDA issues and uh, was sold. Um, and uh, you know the uh, the acquiring entity started started to dismember it. So um, you know the writing was on the wall. But uh, I ended up at Abumed for a couple of reasons. One was that I really had become enamored with the idea of, of being in a startup. I, at the time, I didn't know what that meant, but it sure sounded attractive. And, uh, you know, in the what, late 1980s now, um, this was, uh, you know, the, the, the medical device field was really just starting to catch fire in terms of startups. Um, so that was really appealing to me. And there was also a connection. Someone who had previously worked at Cordis had landed there uh, right before I did um, and uh, was really enjoying himself. So it was a great decision. You know, Abby Ahmed uh, was really a, a great run back in those days. And was that a time when companies could go public on, uh, on pure yeah. hope and promise? In fact, uh, <laughs> as I was joining the company in 1987, you know, it had actually just gone public right before – I arrived and, you know, the company had not even treated a, a patient yet. Uh, it, it was it basically went public on animal data, believe it or not. That's amazing. And of course, yeah. it's, it's still with us today. And, and, and then in, uh, in June 1998, you uh, moved over to uh, Neuron Therapeutics. Did you join as president and CEO? Yeah, I, uh, you know, after 10 years at Abiumet, I decided that uh, I really wanted to do this myself and uh, and start starting companies. So uh, I started Neuron Therapeutics with uh, some people out of the neurosurgery department at Thomas Jefferson, which is how I ultimately landed in uh, in Philly, which is where I am today. And was it the, the neuro industry that uh, you found appealing, or was it just an opportunity that happened to be a startup in the neuro industry that you, you found yourself I, in? I really, I really did find neuro appealing. Um, I you know, convinced myself that uh, this was the decade of the brain, and uh, in many ways it was. In some ways it, it didn't turn out to be, but uh, it was really attractive to me. You know, it was a very um, early-stage kind of market opportunity. Um, but the numbers were huge. The unmet needs were huge. And uh, medical technology at the time had really only just started to be applied to, to neurologic disorders. Uh, so it just seemed like, you know, kind of the, the right place at the right time to me. So looking at the decade of the brain, do you think that did not pan out as uh... As, uh, I, I think promised. I think it I think it has. It's just taken longer than uh, than I think most of us thought. But uh, certainly, you know, if you look around today at what's being done in the neurospace, it's uh, it's fascinating. And you know, the number of patients being helped by all this technology is uh, is huge. So uh, I think it has come to pass, and I think it will uh, it will continue to develop. And, and then you and I had met when you were at Neuronetics. Uh, you joined there in two thousand and three. Right. So is that essentially a continuation of your your pursuit of a of great neural technology? Pretty much, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Neuron Therapeutics uh, didn't make it through uh, clinical trials. We actually ran some pilot studies, and the technology just uh, 
didn't work uh, as we thought it would based on, on the animal work we had done. Um, but several of us that were part of the team at, uh, at Neuron Therapeutics uh, founded uh, Neuronetics in 2003. You know, we saw an opportunity there uh, to really fill um, a giant void in the depression markets, the marketplace. Uh, you had uh, numerous antidepressant drugs, which had limited efficacy, significant side effects. And then you had electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy kind of at the other end of the barbell and um, really nothing in between. And we thought that, you know, patients really needed something that could get them well if they weren't doing well on drug therapy or couldn't stay on the side effects, but wasn't as toxic as, uh, as ECT was. Uh, and that was uh, really the, the niche that, uh, that we were chasing when we developed the, uh, the transcranial magnetic stimulation technology in Neuronetics. So overall, how do you think your, uh, your plans for Neuronetics uh, panned out? Oh, extremely well. Uh, in fact, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, which technology I'm most proud of, uh, I think, at least to date, uh, that would be it. Um, the Neuronetics technology has really um, uh, fit into a, a space in the marketplace in between drug therapy and electroconvulsive therapy that uh, was previously unoccupied, and it's really serving patients who didn't get well on drug therapy or couldn't stand the side effects, and there are millions of those, uh, and I think it's uh, it's benefited at this point, certainly tens of thousands of patients, if, if not more. Uh, so it's been a great clinical success, certainly. So you left in, in 2014. Well, what was the uh, reason for your departure? Well, you know, Neuronetics is moving on to a significant commercial scale now. And uh, my sweet spot is really uh, development and early commercial stage companies. And um, I moved over to, uh, to Intact Vascular, uh, in part because one of the investors uh, in Neuronetics uh, needed some help, and it was really a great fit for uh, for me. Uh, so I came into Intact uh, when it was uh, just a handful of uh, of people, and they were just finishing up their early pilot clinical work. What is the, the you, you see that often CEOs who obviously will focus will prefer working on an early stage venture, or they're more skilled, perhaps, or experienced in, in a commercial stage. And then we see others who are able to, to who, who are able and willing to, to work with a company throughout. What what is it about the uh, I guess the preference for the early stage aspect? Is it just is it the, the the thrill of discovery? Is it is it less sort of day to day management and more sort of scientific pursuit? What is it that you prefer about the earlier stage uh, aspect of a company? Hey everyone, Tom here. We'll let Bruce answer that question in just a moment, but I did want to tell you that uh, the rate for the MedTech Conference will be going up a tick. Please register before April 30th to make sure you get uh, locked into our standard rate of $12.95. So go to medtechconference.com, register before April 30th to, uh, to see those savings. Now let's get back into this conversation with Bruce. Yeah, I think that there are a whole different set of questions that get asked and answered uh, in the earlier part of a company's development as opposed to, say, the uh, kind of the commercial hockey stick stage. Um, and really what I find um, interesting and compelling 
uh, in the earlier phase of, of development is, uh, is answering the technical questions, um, figuring out uh, how to validate your hypotheses and, uh, in the clinical world, um, and then making that happen uh, with clinical trials, uh, managing the, uh, the regulatory process and you know, dealing with all the questions that come up there, building an intellectual property estate, um, and then ultimately uh, you know, bringing the product through the either the 510k or the PMA process, and uh, and onto the marketplace, uh, I think that whole process from start to finish is just incredibly intellectually stimulating, and it's very rewarding. You know, you're actually you're creating things, you're building things that didn't exist before, and that uh, it's very very motivating for me. Did you? Hesitate at all moving uh, into a field outside of neurology where you, you had built a great deal of credibility? And as you said, it, it may have been slowly taking off, but it, it is starting to take off. Uh, any concerns about moving over uh, to peripheral vascular? Not at all. I mean, you know, at this point in my career, I've worked in um, cardiac surgery, cardiology, uh, neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, uh, and now peripheral vascular. I mean, when, when it comes right down to it, you're really exercising the same muscles in a company that is trying to develop new technology and move it through the, the clinical regulatory process, et cetera. Um, you just have to learn the specifics about uh, the markets you're serving, the customers you're serving, and, of course, the technology you're developing. But uh, that's actually entertainment for me, honestly. I find <laughs> diving into a, a completely you know, new clinical field is, uh, is very entertaining and understanding you know, how, how these, these new diseases work and, uh, and how they're treated is, uh, is really, really um, stimulating. Uh, it's, it's, it's great stuff. I, I've never regretted it. So you gave us a bit of a taste of Intact before. Tell us a bit more about uh, what Intact is trying to do and in, in the, the technology it's trying to do it with. Sure. Um, well, the, the basic idea behind Intact uh, was created by Dr. Peter Schneider. He's a vascular surgeon in uh, Honolulu, and um, you know Peter is uh, is a world-renowned key opinion leader in the peripheral vascular field and uh, has spent many years uh, doing uh, balloon angioplasty and, of course, encountering dissections following angioplasty, which is commonplace, and has placed uh, many, many stents in his career to repair those dissections. And he had a thought that, you know, why should I have to stent an entire lesion from end to end to repair post-angioplasty dissections, which are essentially tears in the vessel wall? Uh, that are typically, you know, discrete entities. Uh, why can't I go in and repair them focally and just put metal where I, uh, I need it? Uh, and he came up with this idea for what we call TACs today, which are small um, cylindrical night and all devices that can be deployed with very uh, um, great accuracy right where the dissections occur. You visualize these things right in the cath lab after angioplasty. And uh, you can leave 80% less metal uh, in the artery. You do a lot less um, damage to the artery. There's a lot less mechanical irritation and long-term trauma, uh, which ultimately, we all hope, leads to uh, a healthier artery and better long-term patency. So that was Peter's really kind of fundamental idea. And we've now developed it 
uh, in two different forms, one to treat above the knee disease and one to treat below the knee disease, which are really kind of two very separate market opportunities. What is the difference between the two? Between the two markets? Between ab above the knee and below the knee. Above the knee disease primarily involves the superficial femoral artery. So this is a relatively large diameter artery that runs down your thigh. And when it gets diseased, um, you typically um, can treat it with balloon angioplasty, uh, with stents, in some cases with atherectomy. You're dealing with a fairly large bore vessel, um, so it's relatively speaking easier to open and keep open. Um, below the knee disease uh, is associated with critical limb ischemia. So now we're talking with uh, three primary arteries in the calf, the tibial arteries. They're much smaller in diameter. Uh, the disease kind of takes a different form in those arteries, uh, and they're significantly harder to open and keep open. And in fact, today there's no stent approved for below the knee use in, in the United States. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is that um, you know, big metal and small arteries is a bad combination. So really until we've come along, uh, nobody has designed anything specifically for these very small diameter arteries. So uh, our implant is, uh, is just six millimeters long uh, and up to four millimeters in diameter. So it's actually a very, very small implant, very um, very small footprint in the artery itself, which is kind of tailor-made uh, for these tibial arteries. And the reason it's so critical to open and, and keep open these, these arteries is that if you don't, um, patients go on to develop gangrene. Uh, they then go on to develop amputation. Uh, so the, mor the morbidity associated with critical limb ischemia is really very significant, worse than it is for uh, above-the-knee disease. And where are you in the, the clinical testing of, uh, of TAC? Sure. Uh, above the knee, uh, we're getting very close to completion. Uh, we ran a, a pilot study in Europe a few years ago uh, with great results, uh, and that uh, uh, led us on to TOBA-2, which is our pivotal above the knee trial. Uh, that trial uh, is fully enrolled and will actually get primary endpoint data uh, in the uh, latter part of this summer. Uh, most of our PMA has already been filed, and uh, we'll be filing our clinical module um, in uh, Q3. So we expect that we would have PMA approval for above-the-knee disease uh, in early Q3 of next year. Uh, below the knee, uh, we're about 50% enrolled in our pivotal trial, TOBA2-BTK is what we call it. Um, and that is enrolling uh, very quickly. I expect we'll have it enrolled by the end of the year. Uh, and then primary endpoint data uh, toward the end of next year. Are you dealing with the same uh, physicians for, for above and below? Or is it the same physician doing the procedure? There's quite a bit of overlap. Uh, it's not universal. There are people out there who really specialize in treating uh, uh, critical limb ischemia and therefore have large populations of these patients. So obviously, we're interested in having them as trial sites. Um, so it's not universal, but there is a, a fair bit of overlap, yeah. And what sort of conversation, I'm curious as to the conversations you're having with, uh, with payers at this point. Uh, are, are you having those conversations, and what sort of uh, feedback are you getting from them if you are? Well, the, the conversations that we've really had have concerned the professional societies of relevance here. Uh, so it's cardiology, radiology, vascular surgery. These are the uh, professionals who actually uh, can use the technology. 
Um, and they are really uh, well aligned with the idea that um, this can and should be coded as a stent. So that uh, you know, coding infrastructure, coverage, et cetera, is really well worked out. Uh, and um, the use of our product um, from a work perspective, uh, from a resource perspective, is pretty much indistinguishable from, from stenting. Um, so we will really be covered by the existing codes and, uh, and payment rates. That's terrific. That's a huge relief. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So how large Indeed. is the company now? You mentioned when you, when you joined it was, did you say it was a dozen or less than a dozen? Fewer than a dozen? Uh, less, yeah, less than that. I think there mm -hmm. were maybe six or seven people here. We have 35 employees uh, today. Uh, many of those are out in the field supporting these various clinical trials we have going on. Are you running, uh, are they all on staff? Are you running in a sort of a virtual mode? Or are you intentionally trying to keep the counts lower? Or is it, are the counts where they would be at a med tech at a, at a stage like this? Uh, well, we run kind of a, a hybrid uh, operation, I would say. Uh, in the U.S., our employees are direct, uh, but we also uh, do a lot of this clinical work in Europe. Europeans are very active in our field, uh, particularly in places like Germany and Austria. Um, and uh, the, the feed on the ground that in Europe that we use are, are a contract, so we don't employ people directly in Europe. And you'd mentioned uh, earlier before we uh, pushed the record button that uh, you've got another entity that uh, sort of spun out of Intact already, which is an interesting approach. Tell us a bit about, uh, about Vesper. Yeah. Um, well, along the way here, uh, it became fairly apparent to several of us that uh, the Venus marketplace was developing uh, quite rapidly. And uh, I should probably step back a little bit and just explain uh, what I mean by venous. I think most people are familiar with superficial venous disease, varicose veins, et cetera. That is a large, very well-established uh, business, has been for years. There's another form of venous disease um, that is woefully undertreated, and that is deep venous disease. In particular, um, the iliac and femoral veins, which are the large diameter veins that drain each of your legs into your inferior vena cava. So these are the, the big veins that kind of come up through your pelvis and connect to your IBC. Uh, those veins uh, can occlude, and when they do, the, uh, the results are, are, are really, really uh, dangerous because now you're no longer draining the affected leg. So the leg can swell, you can develop ulcers, you can develop DVTs, et cetera. Uh, and historically, the way that has been treated is with um, kind of top-to-bottom compression stockings and maybe some kind of antiplatelet agent, and, you know, they, they wish you well. But um, it, it's really kind of become obvious in, in the last few years that you can intervene on this disease successfully. And in order to do that and to keep that section of vein open, you really need very large diameter stents. And we saw an opportunity to design a family of stents that were really um, tailored to the unique mechanical needs of this section of, of deep vein. Uh, again, there's, there's no uh, stent in the U.S. approved for this use. There's, there's one that gets used off-label simply because it's, uh, it's big enough in diameter, but it's really not, um, it's not designed for this particular use. Uh, and the beauty of, of what we're doing at Vesper is that uh, it's essentially the same customer. Uh, and the, the skills we need to develop this product 
um, designing a, a night and hall implant, designing a delivery system, doing all the necessary testing, the regulatory process, the clinical trial process. You know, we know how to do all that at Intact. Those are our core competencies at Intact. Um, so we came up with a really novel design. Uh, we convinced a couple of our investors, NEA and Quaker, that this was really a compelling opportunity. Um, and we formed a separate company. We spun it out of Intact. We call it Vesper Medical. Uh, it's still, at least for the time being, managed by the same team. I'm the CEO, for example, of both companies. So we're able to leverage uh, all of the infrastructure and skill that e exists at, at Intact, uh, which has enabled us to really make very rapid progress on relatively little money. Um, so it's been a, a really exciting opportunity, I think, motivating for uh, for everybody here. Why wouldn't it fit as a as a part of Intact, perhaps a separate division? Or yeah, no, that's a that's a very uh, good question. Uh, we thought uh, long and hard about that. There were a couple reasons that we wanted to spin it out. Uh, one was that uh, you know it's entirely conceivable that uh, a buyer may show up at some day and, and be very interested in one asset, say the arterial assets, but not in the venous assets. And uh, if it's all bound together, uh, we're selling the thing that they're not very interested in at a very deep discount. Um, so that's one issue. Uh, the other issue is is financing. Um, you know, Vesper is a much, much earlier stage uh, transaction than Intact is. And putting money into, into essentially into Vesper at Intact's valuation you know, is not necessarily attractive. Uh, so by, by splitting it off as its own legal entity and funding it separate, separately, we solve both of those problems. Interesting. Has that, have you seen that done before? Is this modeled after another uh, transaction? Um, I, I know of one other company that did something uh, similar. Yeah, another NEA portfolio company. Um, I, I don't think it's commonplace, but uh, I, don't, I don't think we're the first people to ever do it. And how does it work for you as, a, as CEO of both companies? How do you, how do you manage those responsibilities? Yeah, you know, it's worked out uh, fine um, because, again, it's the same customers. Uh, it's the same uh, vascular meetings, uh, et cetera. There's just a lot of overlap. I wouldn't have done it if, if that wasn't true. Um, but there's so much overlap that, uh, say, if I, I, I'm going off to Charing Cross in a week, uh, and uh, there's a large vascular conference in London. Um, and we will be doing intact business, you know, at the same time we're doing Vesper business while we're at that meeting. So um, it's not uh, as, as demanding from a time perspective, time perspective as it might sound um, because there is so much uh, overlap. And, uh, again, you know, to go back to my earlier comment about uh, – you know, you know, learning new things is a, is a form of entertainment for me. Uh, you know, this has been a, another great learning experience. I bet. That's terrific. Well, let's uh, wrap up with the news of the day. You'd, you'd closed on a $20 million Series C, uh, which yes. sounds like it came primarily, at least primarily, maybe exclusively from your existing investors. Is that true? Yeah, uh, mostly uh, NEA, um, HIG, BioVentures, and Quaker. Mm-hmm. So what was that, uh, was there, in, in raising a Series C, was there ever consideration of, of seeking outside investors, or was this the, the understanding all along? I know with NEA and Quaker and HIG were all part of a, of a larger Series B. Is this uh, sort of how you structured things, uh, the financing going forward, that the three would be the primary, if not the exclusive, backers? 
Yeah, we, we did spend a little bit of time uh, talking to sort of uh, friends of the family, so to speak. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we all collectively decided that um, it really wasn't in our interest to spend uh, a lot of time and energy trying to run a process. And, uh, you know, the existing investors were very supportive of what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, it was really just um, far easier and far less distracting to uh, to do the round as, as we did it. And this uh, this round is uh, going to get the attack in the vascular system through uh, PMA, you hope, next year? Yes, exactly, right. That's outstanding. So do you think you would need further capital going forward for your other programs? You know, that uh, that sort of all depends. Uh, you know, we're, um, we're really in, in a, a critically important uh, year. Um, we're going to get primary endpoint data on our pivotal above the knee trial here before too long. Um, will, I think, by the end of the year, have really good visibility to what's going on with the PMA. As I mentioned earlier, we have most of the PMA already uh, prosecuted through FDA, so it's down to the clinical data. So um, I, I think it'll really just depend on whether or not we think it makes sense to launch this on our own or, or not. Uh, obviously, if we're going to launch it on our own, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do another financing to to uh, to fund that, but uh, that's a decision that you know we we don't have to make quite yet. Did you have uh, conversations with strategic investors? You seem to be at a stage where it'd be great to have one of them come board. At least that's how it would happen at uh, perhaps at other companies. Uh, we did not. Again, you know, we have a group of very supportive uh, insiders, and uh, I think we all felt that uh, we'll save the strategic conversations, uh, you know, for a little bit later down the road. It's always best to put those off. Well, uh, final question. I mean, anything I didn't ask you about? Anything else we should know about uh, Intact or, or what you are looking forward to going f going forward? Oh, I, I just think that um, you know, peripheral vascular and venous in general are really you know dynamic markets. Um, there's an enormous amount uh, going on, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be uh, part of it. I think we have some very novel technology in both companies that fits well with where the clinical world wants to go. Um, and uh, I think the next couple of years are going to be really exciting. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot going on there, and I'm very happy you could take a little time to talk to us about it. Thanks for the time, Bruce. Thank you, Tom. And that's a wrap. Thank you, MedTech Talk podcast listeners, for joining us on this week's episode. Thank you, Bruce Shook, for joining us as well. Thanks to everyone who continues to uh, give us rankings, tell your, your friends, posting stuff on social media about the podcast, whatever you do. We really appreciate the support and uh, the help getting the word out. Don't forget to join us on May 31st at the MedTech Conference in Minneapolis. Go to medtechconference.com and sign up before the end of the month so you uh, get a little bit of savings. Tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast. <laughs>